Well, as hard as it is to believe, we are just marching into this time of Christmas. Normally, as we come into this time, it's, it's a time of looking forward, of, of what's ahead. At times, yeah, stressed of doing things right, the, the right gift, the, the right preparation, <laughs> and yeah, the right deals. But amidst the stress, there's also hope, that we're hopeful of things better and things, that, things more, things that will be different. In part, that hope is encouraged by the fanciful time we're in of lights and dreams and, and joy and song. But this year, hope not all that prominent. By now, we thought the, the COVID nightmare would be wrestled to the ground. Uh, maybe not completely, but enough at least that we could resume life close to what we understood as normal. Yeah, there would be some differences. We understand that. There'd be the masking up as we come into close proximity with, with others. That, but, but wanting and hoping that we would be able to re-engage life with family and friends. And yeah, we heard the warnings of the second and third wave that were possible. But there was that part of us that we just didn't really think they were going to be likely, at least likely, that would affect us, just further adjustments, just things that we would learn to live with. And during the summer, we found ways to do workarounds that we could just do life, but now not so much. And in days to come, the nightmare is still with us, the severity actually increasing. And Christmas looking decidedly different, far different, Far more darkness than we could ever have imagined. Far more darkness than, than celebration. Living dark and in many ways closed in. And in this, just, just a small understanding of a world that we want to revisit of 2,000 years ago. We're looking at a, a world that was decidedly different in some ways, because it was dominated by oppressor after oppressor. There, there was a time that Israel, where we step into, was a, a time that was a nation under King David and King Solomon that was a nation of power and, and wealth, a, a nation that people admired and they envied. But that was a thousand years ago. And after Cap Babylonian captivity, it was hardly true. It was hardly true of a nation that anyone envied. Their city was in many ways ruined. Their, their temple was destroyed. And though the city had been rebuilt, it had never really reclaimed the, the glory that it once was. Some returned from captivity to, to Israel, but others just remained captured by other gods and other lifestyles in Babylon. And in the years that came closer to Christ's birth, Israel, life in Israel wasn't much better. Now, under Roman occupation, but just before that, living under the tyranny of the Greeks and after the, after the death of Alexander the Great, a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes came to power. And his name said it all. He was God manifest. And the nightmares under him came quickly as, as the decadence and immorality of the Greek life was 
imposed upon Jerusalem, wanting to make Jerusalem just like a, a Greek city, just like Antioch and, and the others. Antiochus took his priests and had those that were sensitive or uh, aligning with Greeks, Greece and the Greek dream, they were set as to be priests. And one among them, by the name of, of Jason, he was actually appointed high priest, but only because he paid a huge sum of money to be appointed in that role. <laughs> and then he himself was outfoxed, outmaneuvered by someone else that offered a whole lot more money. And that sent Israel into a place of some revolt. And that was the dry tinder that set the stage for some tyranny and some evil that would soon be set ablaze. Antiochus had a desire to conquer many, much of the world for Greece, and so he headed off to, to conquer Egypt. And on his way, he was ordered by Rome, who was more powerful at this time, a rising power, he was ordered to turn back and to leave, leave Egypt alone. Antiochus, humiliated by what Rome had ordered, he turned his fury as he came into the reins and the realm of Israel. And seeing and hearing about the revolt, thought that this revolt was against turning Jerusalem Greek. And it was a, an offense to him and to uh, his dream. And so he came upon Israel and came upon with bloody massacre. He came in and, and killed many. He took the women and children who weren't uh, killed, and they were sent as slaves for others. The Jewish religion was abolished, and women uh, who had circumcised their children, they were put to death, but not before their dead children were wrapped around their neck, and just evil upon evil. And then he did the act above all acts. He entered God's temple, the Holy of Holies, and he erected a temp an image of Zeus. And then he took some swine and he took them and butchered them on the, God's altar, the, the blood of an unclean animal, the pigs, now pouring over the altar and pouring over the, over the Holy of Holies. It was later called, or it was called at the time, it was called the abomination of desolation. And it's a term that, that Revelation will later remind us of, that of another time of abomination of desolation. And, and so that was the, the backdrop of what had come out of the world of the Greeks, and now it was into the power and the cruelty of the Romans. And behind all this was the author of the nightmare, he was the author that we're told of in Ezekiel chapter 28 when what could have been and would have been the dreamlike became the nightmare of all nightmares. It was of him who has said, you were the signet of perfection. You were full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, and you were an anointed cherub, blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. 
You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor, and I cast you to the ground. And by the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. It was a description of the one who would do war with God. Ezekiel, the prophet, talked about this, and later Isaiah talked about it in in Isaiah 14, describing a world of nightmares that would be introduced by this one who wanted to be God. And yet, at this time, and despite his every effort to take control, Isaiah and Ezekiel and other prophets spoke of a dream that would come into the nightmare and it would soon appear uh, talking about the appearance of one who would enter the dark and end the nightmares. It was a dream that would fulfill what the prophets had said. A, uh, a prophet, uh, Moses says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. But a star, a light will come out of Jacob. It will be a scepter who will rise out of Israel thousands of years before the gift that would come at the time we now call Christmas, the prophets speaking of what would come. And that message, he's behold, but he's not near, but he's coming. It's God's promise of a star, of a light that will come. It talks about a scepter that will come from the line of Jacob. God's appointed king. And that's one thing to know, but God adds to the description of what is coming in this, in this light. Consider what the prophet Isaiah says 700 years before. He says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit will rest on him. There's going to be the appearance of something small. There's going to be the appearance of a shoot. And by definition, a shoot coming from a place of a stump. The definition of a stump is this. If you go to the dictionary, a stumps have a thin outer layer of living cells surrounding a hollow central cavity. In other words, a stump has a thin veneer of life, but at the core, it's profoundly dead. And this stump had been dead for over a thousand years. And while Israel might have been a great tree during the time of David's reign, ever since Babylonian captivity, Greece taking over, Rome filling in, this was a stump long dead. But Isaiah said, the miraculous will appear out of the dead places, out of the places where no life could exist, or out of the it-can't-happen places, will come a shoot. A shoot will appear. A sprout will appear. And Jeremiah carries the image even farther. He says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will be a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And this is the name by which he will be called. He will be the Lord, our righteous Savior. That this one that is going to be a shoot will grow to be a branch, and the branch will grow larger than just an ordinary branch. He's going to be a branch that ultimately will be a king. He won't appear as much, but he will take upon himself 
the authority of a king, of a savior. We get a similar warning from Daniel. When David's days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I don't know what David would have thought as he heard those words, but I would have imagined that David was probably thinking, well, perhaps a son or maybe a grandson, perhaps even a great-grandson. But a thousand years removed, that out of the core of the dead stump, that you're going to bring life, you're going to bring a sense of hope that will actually change everything the branch will be established and he will establish his kingdom forever this isn't just something david you're going to have as a throne that you pass on one to another it's going to last forever the promise of a dream that the prophets tell us thousands of years before jesus is born he will be a light he will be a king he will be a savior and he will have an everlasting kingdom now, we need to pull out of the story for a bit because we're familiar with it. But, but we need to stop for a bit and think of what that would have meant to those that were living at the time. Because you and I could say similar things. We, we could say, well, a prophet's going to come and a king's going to come and a ruler's going to be there. And like Isaiah, we could make these, these broad declarations of what could happen. Especially if what's going to happen, we're not going to be anywhere around. We can say whatever we like. And whether it happens to fit, whether it happens to come into play, we don't know because we're not here to answer that. But the thing about what God promised is he doesn't leave his declarations in broad, broad commentary. He fills in the details. He feel, fills in the details of what was come, not just a few, but many. Some details that only can fit with the miraculous, like what Isaiah says when he says, therefore the Lord himself, he will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and you will call him Emmanuel. We're so familiar with the story, but we got to think about that, that I'll give you a virgin and that virgin somehow miraculously will have a son. Not through human intervention, not through human acts of sexual activity, but it's going to be a virgin who will give birth to a son. And his name, his name will be called God with us. It sounds actually in some ways ridiculous. Unless, I mean, leave the story for a bit. Imagine your daughter coming to you and saying the outrageous that God has told me that this is going to happen. How are we to wrap our mind around and believe that? But even then, God fills in the details even more. He tells us where we should look and what the things that we should expect to see. He, He wants us to understand amidst the nightmares that you walk through, the nightmares that surround, the the stuff that doesn't make sense, I've got a plan and I'm working out a plan. And that this appearance that what I'm giving you will come in a nondescript place from where no king should expect to come. 
There's no prominence to it. There's no wealth to it. There's no attraction to it. It's just backwater small, backwater poor. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you were small, <laughs> you were tiny. And I've said before, if you've ever been to Bethlehem, you'll understand it's, it's, just, it's just a non-place. You're small among the clans of Judah. Out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. The message that I give has been declared from a long time back. And the promise is that the delay of a, a long dead stump will come the impossible. The impossible that will speak into the places of oppression and of poverty and of despair, of hopelessness. The places that we don't see an answer. The places in our lives that don't seem to have any answer. God says, I I work in those places. I speak into those places. Places where we live right now. And yet to this place, God says, this, this place of nondescript, no importance. He said, the important will come. And the unimportant will come. May the desert tribes come and bow before him. And may the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all the kings bow down to him and all the nations serve him. A a prophecy that kings and commoners are going to come. And not just these ones, but it is going to be that kings will come and all, all nations will serve him. It's a promise that seems to be impossible. If you heard these words of kings and prophets and commoners coming, your image would rightly go to where would he come? He'd obviously come to palaces and thrones, places far grander than the ones that we see. It would go to places of wealth and power, but going to a rock-hewn stable? To appear among the, the cow dung and the smells. And, and he would come and you will, as it says, you will find him in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. You know, I can't say this with certainty, but I think it's interesting that God says that there's, you'll find him in swaddling clothes. That seems to me a little bit like saying you're going to find a baby in diapers. Well, how else would you expect to find a baby? Why, why swaddling clothes? And though I, again, can't say with absolute certainty, swaddling would have, have told us several things. One would be that this child, no matter how poor the situation, how poor the surround, how, how poor he presented himself, that he'd be swaddled, that he would be loved, he would be cared for, he'd be protected, he would be special. There was something about him that wouldn't just be cast aside, wouldn't be in this impoverished place and just poorly regarded. He would be protected. But there's another possibility as well. Because the shepherds who came were well familiar with the idea of swaddling. And though we can't say with 100 degree certainty we know that these were shepherds and highly likely they were shepherds who knew what it was to swaddle their sheep, swaddle their lambs. Because the lambs that they were raising, many of them likely would have been raised 
to be for temple sacrifice and for Passover lambs. And those lambs for, for Passover, they needed to be perfect. And so the newborn lambs were swaddled. They were wrapped to protect them, to make them perfect. Perfect for sacrifice. The, the one special one that would go into the temple or the few special ones. And the ones that would be around a Passover ta- table. Just like the lamb who would go into the dirty places of our lives and the grimy places of our lives, the one that was perfect but would come into the place of the imperfect, come to where we live into the sense of that we need a Passover lamb, God's perfect sacrificial lamb for the sacrifice of sin. So what do we do with this? What do we do with the story of Nightmare to Dream? Is it to fortify some some Christmas narrative, some Christmas comfort? Is it to bring us around some inspirational songs and warm warm memories? Exuberant uh, uh, wrapping or unwrapping of, of presents? Or could it be that God gave us this dream, that this dream entered in our world, God's gift wrapped to fulfill what the prophets said and in that to transform our lives. The wrapped, waiting for to be revealed is the answer to our poverty and our oppression and our hopelessness and our brokenness. Not coming as a story, but coming as God's answer. And how we understand that all depends on the perspective we want. Because if we see him as just a central character in some marvelous, fantastic, heartwarming play, then we're left with a story that entertains. And it's got all the feel-goods. It's, it's got the baby. It's got some presents. It's got the royalty. It's got the heavenly music. It's got the amazing light show. And It's got a touch of the angelic supernatural. It's a great story. And they, for a moment or two, take us out of the sort of humdrumness of life that we're preoccupied with. But but soon after the season is passed, we just take the story and we place it alongside on our bookshelves along Aesop's fables and C.S. Lewis tales and Dr. Seuss. We bring them out as a prominent display at certain times of the year, but we then shelve them again. That's one way that we can view this time, and many do. Many don't even give it that prominence. And for others, there's the possibility to think of him as the historic. Uh, Absolutely, we don't deny that there's a birth, yet that birth is wrapped with a whole lot of the imagination and the manufactured, making what was into something far greater than ever could be. The human made out to be the supernatural. And honestly, the possibility of that in a a time that we look at of technology and robotics and artificial intelligence, it seems almost archaic to go back and look at what was written 2,000 years ago And besides, who's to say that those things that were written, the prophecies that were given, they were just sort of cobbled together long after the fact. 
it's entertaining, but could it be anything more than that? That's another possibility. And yet there's another possibility, and that's to buy into the things that were seen and the things said. Not just the things that were said about shepherds and prophets and a manger, but there are the other things that were said around surrounding his birth. Prophecies that speak of and validate things that would come later for this small child things that were given the writing of other prophets that would say he, he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, told us by the prophet Zechariah. We are told he would be betrayed by a friend, talked about to us by the psalmist and also Zechariah and others. He would be mocked, he would be beaten, and he would, people would gamble for his clothes. He would die with criminals but be buried with the rich. He would rise from the dead. All the words of the prophets coming together, taking the, the prophets of this dream that would be given and then the nightmare that would surround and the calamity that would fall upon him and convinced of everything that we see we believe that he is the one of whom the prophets spoke the one that was dreamed of the one who did die to forgive us our sin and in this He's center stage. We came to the place of believing that. But all too often, too many of us give him actually the one who is center stage. We give him bit player roles in our lives. It's someone we accepted, someone we believed, and then we just allow him to be a bit player on the sidelines. Not unlike an athlete who, who makes the team. He signs the contract and then he shows up for a few practices whenever he feels that it suits his purposes. But a player that's rarely available to play the game. And if he happens to arrive at a game, he, he's barely game match fit. <laughs> and when he enters, he's continually knocked down. See, the problem is he owns the uniform, but he never understands what wearing the uniform means. That he, he wears it, but he doesn't actually live it. And here's the thing about our faith. Jesus didn't reveal himself to convince us of a contract to sign or a belief to accept because God could have accomplished that by demand. But he doesn't want our compliance. He he doesn't want us to sort of adopt something. He wants our heart. Because it's our heart that follows. It is our heart that knows joy. It's our heart where dreams are satisfied. It's our heart that loves. And it's God's given dream that brings light into our nightmares, our situations that don't make sense, that heals our wounds, that brings hope into our darkness, that speaks life into places of death. And that means for us that we stop treating this arrival as some magnificent story. Because Jesus calls us this Christmas to follow him, to worship him that he is God become flesh 
our only light in a world of dark, our only hope in a world of nightmare that surrounds. Which brings me, intriguingly, full circle. Back into this contrast of light with dark and nightmares with dreams. And in the beginning, I referenced the, the nightmare of the, the despicable. The brutality of Antiochus Epiphanes. His name, God Manifest. A man wanting to claim a title and a place that wasn't his. Because that title actually belonged to one who would soon come. But the darkness of that story, the darkness of what presented under Antiochus Epiphanes, was just a shadow of things that are still yet to come. They talked about one thing, but they also spoke of another time that would come. A time where the darkness would usher in uh, a nightmare that would not see the light of day. It would be the nightmare of all nightmares. It's a nightmare for those who reject Jesus, who, who only see him as, as just a baby, just as a, one to be looked at, as a story to enjoy. But those who don't know Jesus in a much deeper way, a much more significant way, the, actually the only way that he came to be known, and that is our Savior, our Redeemer, our forgiver of sins. They will experience a nightmare where there won't be awakening to a better day. It too is described as the abomination of desolation when Christ's enemy will set himself up in the temple to be worshipped as God. He will demand it from the whole world and much of the world will give that to him. And just like Christmas... That depiction isn't just a story. Rather, it's the certainty of the prophecies of what God has given us, his forever reality of what will happen, just in the same way that God worked out to the letter every prophecy that he gave in the Old Testament in the fulfillment of Jesus. The abomination of desolation a nightmare for those who don't know what it means to have their sins forgiven and find new life in Jesus. God's warning for those who reject the gift of his salvation. So here's the choice. This Christmas could be a story. It could be something that, yeah, makes some sense and I enjoy the time. But that leaves you with two options. It's either a nightmare or a dream. Because the ending of that story is all determined by the decision we make regarding the one we're presented with this Christmas. The one we're told that says, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Unto you is born this day in the city of David. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior. Ours when his story becomes my story. My Savior. Christ the Lord. And that story 
introduces us to a dream beyond anything I have ever imagined. A dream that we're told will never end. A baby. Innocent. That would actually become God's gift that we may know life and know it for all eternity.